0: Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Lookup Podcast. I'm
1: Jess. And I'm Ophelia. And we are going to highlight what to look for in the sky in October in this Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. If you enjoy a good cup of tea when
0: you're stargazing, why not treat yourself to a celestial pot of tea? Lying low above the horizon in the south is the constellation of Sagittarius, home of a well-known asterism called the teapot, because it looks like a teapot. With a very dark sky, our home galaxy, the Milky Way, Will appear as steam rising out of the spout of the teapot with the center of the galaxy lying to the upper right of the tip of the spout. At this time of year the teapot asterism is visible from the northern and southern hemispheres. From the UK it can be seen low on the southern horizon right after sunset but keep in mind that this asterism never rises very high at these latitudes. The southern hemisphere has a much better view at this time of year as the teapot is visible all night high above the horizon, which means it's not affected by light pollution as much as it is when it's low on the horizon.
1: During the month, there will be a number of passes of the International Space Station, also known as the ISS. It is the largest artificial satellite in orbit around the Earth and appears as a bright point of light moving across the sky in a couple of minutes. Orbiting at an average altitude of 400 kilometres Above the surface of the Earth, the ISS travels at a whopping 17,500 miles per hour or 28,000 kilometers per hour and takes around 90 minutes to complete one orbit around the Earth. This means that on the ISS you get to see the sun rise and set over the Earth 16 times every day. Due to its large solar panels, the ISS is easy to see because it reflects light from the sun. The ISS is visible every few days for a given location and for detailed information about visible passes at your location, visit NASA Spot the Station website. This website will allow you to see the precise start and end time of ISS passes and the exact path on the sky. For example, the ISS will be visible from London on the 1st of October at 7.18pm. The space station will start its journey on the western horizon, moving southwest and reaching a maximum height of 34 degrees in the sky, and this passage will last for six minutes. For those keen on doing some lunar observations, we recommend
0: that you wait until the 22nd of October, when the moon reaches its first quarter phase, as this provides the perfect opportunity to spot craters. Grab a pair of binoculars or a telescope and direct your gaze at the Terminator which is the dividing line between day and night on the Moon. It's along this line that you'll see shadows cast by mountains onto the lunar surface, and you'll also spot the shadows cast by crater walls. See if you can spot the Plato Crater, which lies on the northern edge of Mare Imbrium, a sea of rain. This crater has a diameter of over 90 kilometers and is one of the easiest to recognise because of its dark floor. Lying close to Plato are the Lunar Alps, a mountain range that was formed by the same impact event that created the Mare Imbrium.
1: This month, the gas giants Jupiter and Saturn make a welcome return to the evening sky, with both planets visible towards the southeast after sunset. These planets are great targets for a pair of binoculars or a telescope, as you may even be able to make out some of their moons. See if you can spot the four largest moons of Jupiter, known collectively as the Galilean moons in honour of Galilei, Galilei who discovered them in 1608. When turning your attention to Saturn, try to find Titan, Saturn's largest moon. It is the only moon in the entire solar system that has a thick atmosphere, and the only other solar system body that has liquid on its surface. But don't expect to find liquid water on Titan. The temperature is far too cold for water to exist in a liquid state. What you'll find are lakes of liquid hydrocarbons. Now that would make for an interesting cup of tea. As
0: for meteor showers, we have two this month. The draconids are active from the 6th to the 10th of October and peak on the night of the 8th of October when there's an average of 10 meteors per hour expected. These meteors are associated with the comet 21P Giacobini-Zinner. This meteor shower, like others, carries a name after the constellation it appears to radiate from, which in this case is Draco. The second meteor shower, active throughout the entire month and into November, is the Orionids, which peak on the night of the 21st. On this night, an average of 25 meteors per hour is expected. This number does sometimes vary, and in 2007, as many as 70 meteors per hour were recorded. This meteor shower is associated with the famous Halley's Comet, the only known comet that can reappear twice during a human lifetime. If you live to be very old.
1: (laughs) This month, our readers from the South get to share the teapot asterism with us from the North. The constellations that are located near the North or South Celestial Pole can only be seen from their respective hemispheres. But constellations like Sagittarius, which are somewhere in the middle, can be seen from a range of latitudes on both hemispheres. If you have a telescope, there are some great deep sky objects worth looking for near the teapot. You could have a look for M6, M7, M24 or NGC6553, which are all star clusters, or the Lagoon Nebula, a stunning stellar nursery. If you do take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them
0: to us at ROG Astronomers. You might also want to check out our Night Sky Highlights blog on our website, Go to rmg.co.uk. But for now, it's time for our cosmic news.
1: As always, we want to say a big shout out to Lexi for writing the script for us. uh, And also to Alex, who was one of our work experience uh, students over the summer. Thanks, guys.
0: Well, now we're on to our cosmic news, and in this section of the podcast, we both bring a news story, an astronomy news story, to the table for our audience. Uh, we are recording on a particularly windy day. so if you hear howling winds, that's because there are howling winds. Uh, we are inside. <laughs> it doesn't feel like it, does it?
1: Hmm Ooh, were they close the park? Then we all go home. Just a recap of
0: last month's news stories before we talk about this month. Last month, I spoke about us losing contact with Voyager 2. Temporarily, we have it back now. And then what was your news story, Ophelia?
1: My new story was about tidal waves on the Heartbreaker star.
0: Mm, which is a good name for a star. <laughs> and we also asked our audience and our colleagues and our visitors about what they would put on another Voyager. So Voyagers 1 and 2 had the golden record, this sort of little record of humanity. And if we had Voyager 3, which we don't, but if we did have a Voyager 3, what would we put on Voyager 3? Um, I got a lot of lot of answers about pe- pictures, mm-hmm. so I'm glad that that's popular. Uh, what was your favourite response, Amelia?
1: Um, someone said put... Uh, is it Chloe Kelly? Uh, her boots into uh, onto that. And uh, to... Commemorate how the lionesses won the Euros last year. Nice.
0: <laughs> We'd have to ask Chloe Kelly as well if she wants her boot on the <laughs> spacecraft. But
1: <laughs> <laughs> lovely.
0: Okay, and then our news stories for this month seem to have a theme. Yes. We're both talking
1: about a specific space telescope. Surprise, surprise. Mm. It's uh, it's that telescope. <laughs> <laughs> JWST.
0: Nice. So, would you like to go first, Ophelia, or would you like me to go first? Oh, you can go first. Nice. So, my news story for you all this month is a discovery of JWST, a recent discovery, about the atmosphere of an exoplanet. Mm. Now, the fact that there is an exoplanet there, or the fact that it has an atmosphere, isn't isn't news. Uh, We found over 5,000 exoplanets. Uh, This one in particular, it's called K218b. And it was discovered back in 2015 by Kepler, which was another space telescope. And it was discovered via the, the transit method. So we saw a little dip in light when this planet passed in front of its parent star. So we've known about the star for a while and about the planet for a while. But now that we have JWST in operation, and because it is you know the biggest and best we've had in this sort of area, um, it's been looking at the atmospheres of exoplanets and trying to characterise the atmospheres. To, to learn more about them. JWST has confirmed the presence of carbon dioxide and methane in the atmosphere of this planet. And we do think there's water there as well, potentially, and it might be suitable to have an, an ocean, to have liquid water. And with those gases and with that sort of environment, it might be a habitable world.
1: Ooh. Mm. So because it might, might have mm. liquid water? hmm then it might have the right kind of temperature? It's a, it's a weird one. So there's lots of different
0: categories of exoplanets. Um, and as we keep finding more, we keep sort of inventing new categories and changing the, the descriptions and the wording. So this exoplanet is sometimes referred to as a mini-Neptune or a sub-Neptune. It's also sometimes referred to as a high world, Ooh. which is a, a hydrogen ocean world, I think is the sort of compound word they've got that from. So it's a planet which is bigger than the Earth. This one in particular, it's almost three times the Earth's radius and about eight times the Earth's mass. It's definitely bigger than the Earth. Sometimes planets that are bigger than the Earth we call super-Earths, but that makes people think of a planet which is just like the Earth but bigger. Mm -hmm. But this one is between the size of the Earth and Neptune, and it could be a planet with a rocky core and then a very, very sort of dense, thick, hydrogen-rich atmosphere. Um, or it could be something more, more Neptune in, in structure. So there's a couple of options for what it is. So it's not Earth-like and it's not specifically a gas giant. We've got rock and we've got atmosphere, okay. we think.
1: So is this uh, a kind of planet we don't have in the solar system?
0: Yes, it is, which is why it's quite mm. hard for us to, to characterize. We haven't got any mini Neptunes. Mm-hmm. And there aren't any particularly close by. This one is uh, 120 light-years away. Mm-hmm. Which, if you were going at 60 miles an hour, would take you a billion years to get there. (laughs) Which is a nice round number, I like that. Wow. (laughs) Um.
1: This is partly why people are so interested in Uranus and Neptune nowadays. Because statistically, a lot of the, most of the exoplanets out there are these, you know, Mm sub-Neptunian, Uranian um, exoplanets. So if we understand Uranus and Neptune a bit better, then we can apply what we know to these far-off worlds. Yeah.
0: Um, It's orbiting a a cool red dwarf. This uh, star is not visible to the naked eye, so there are stars hundreds of light years away which we can see in the sky with our eyes, but this isn't one of them. And this planet is possibly tidally locked to the star, Hmm. and it's part of that category where a few years ago, astronomers would have said that it's not habitable because it's close and possibly tidally locked to this cool red star. Um, But some new research has suggested that it might be possible with a thick enough atmosphere to have a habitable world that close to a star.
1: Oh, okay. So tidally locked means one side of it always faces... The star? Yep. And so you'd think that one side will be really hot, the other side will be really cold. Yeah, but if your atmosphere is
0: thick enough, it might sort of circulate, regulate the temperature enough to make it work. And they don't know for sure. It's tidally locked. We have no images. We can't Mm -hmm. sort of study it in motion. We only have this dip, the atmosphere in our models. Um, But it takes just over 30 days to orbit, which is pretty close. It takes our closest planet 88 days to orbit.
1: Yeah. Mm. Okay, so they're basing... um, this idea that it might be tiny lot based on how close it is to the, to the star and, and, and that from how long it takes to go around the star. Yeah. Okay. And
0: uh, something else that was announced when they announced these gases in the atmosphere of this potentially habitable exoplanet is the presence of dimethyl sulfide, or DMS. Ooh, what's that? Um, it is a gas that you can find in the atmosphere, um, but on Earth it is produced we think, only through life. So the main producer of dimethyl sulfide on the Earth is marine phytoplankton, so like little creatures in the sea. Mm, Okay. Um, Now, very importantly, they don't definitely know it's there. It's only suggested it's there. We haven't got confirmed data. And if it is there, there might be other methods of producing it. Mm. But there's some very interesting gases in the atmosphere of this exoplanet. And because of this sort of headline about dimethyl sulfide and that being produced by life. Um, It was in the news quite a lot sort of earlier this month, so I thought it was worth us talking about. Mm. Um, But yeah, still lots of unknowns with the planet. Mm -hmm. Um, They're planning on doing some follow-up observations. So it's been looked at by Kepler, then by Hubble, and now by JWST. And now JWST is going to go back and look with its MIRI, with its mid-infrared instrument, and try and sort of make sure that they've got this right (laughs) with the gases and try and work out what the sort of components of the atmosphere are
1: are there any other telescopes that can look at it there might be Mm, because then if that telescope sees the same thing you've got a better sort of yeah indication that what you're seeing is right Mm -hmm. the methane and the carbon dioxide that also sounds interesting what else could that suggest
0: well on earth carbon dioxide and methane are produced by life as well as by inorganic processes um, and they're also carbon-based molecules, which we think are, are necessary for life if we're thinking about carbon-based life. So again, it's not, it's not an indicator there's definitely life, but it's better than there not being any carbon dioxide or methane.
1: You heard it right here, Jess says there's aliens.
0: Jess <laughs> <laughs> <Just laughs> does think there are aliens. <laughs> but that's hope and not science. <laughs> you can't see it with your eyes, the planet or the star, but it is within the constellation of Leo. So, when Leo is visible in the night sky again, look at Leo, and think of this exoplanet. <laughs> um, there are two exoplanets orbiting this star. There's K218b and K218c, but b is the one people are focusing on at the moment because it's this strange mini Neptune, sub Neptune, mm. super Earth type thing, and because it might be suitable for life.
1: Mm. Do you think astronomers will give it a proper name one day?
0: Hopefully. Maybe that could be our question. Oh, what would we call this world? Yeah. Okay, based on the vague facts I've given you and the vague information about what it could or couldn't have, what do you think we should call it? K218b. Mini-Neptune, 120 light-years away. Full of carbon dioxide and methane. (laughs) The paper was published in the Astrophysical Journal Letters. lead author was... uh, Nico Madhudsan, who's an astronomer at the University of Cambridge. If you want to read the paper for yourself. <laughs> um, if you want to just tell him about aliens for the rest of the day, you can do that as well. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's my new story, One Discovery by JWST. And you want to talk about another discovery by JWST. Yes. Go right ahead.
1: You might remember from your school days, uh, especially if you studied physics at A-levels, about the Hubble constant. Astronomers now know that the universe is expanding, and it's still expanding, and um, it's actually expanding faster than, than we first thought. And so the Hubble constant is this sort of like speed limit of the cosmos. It tells you how fast, essentially, the uh, universe is, is, is expanding, and you can calculate, um, you can get this constant by a few different methods. So firstly, you can look at the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is uh, what's often called as the universe's baby photo. Um, It's essentially the first light of the universe, the oldest light. After the Big Bang, the universe was really, really hot and light couldn't move uh, freely. It just kept getting absorbed by the electrons and and particles. Um, And then eventually, about... 380,000 years after the Big Bang, atoms started to form, so electrons started to, to orbit around um, the uh, neutrons and the protons, and then light could uh, could move. And over the last 14 billion years or so, that light has lost energy, um, and we see it now um, in the form of, of microwaves. The second way you can calculate the Hubble constant is by looking at far away stars and seeing how um how, like how far they're moving um and there, there's a certain kind of star called Cepheid variables uh these are also known as standard candles because their brightness um is linked to their period pe- is linked to their periodicity so if you look at a star if you look at two stars actually one of them might appear brighter But that might just be because it's closer to us.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: We don't know which one is actually the brighter uh, of of the two. But several variables, they have a standard sort of brightness. And that's linked to um, how fast they pulse. Um, And the longer the period is, the brighter they are. So the slower the pulsating, the brighter they are. Yes. Yeah. Yes. There are actually two kinds of severed variables, but Hubble, um, Edwin Hubble, uh, in, in 1923, so actually, actually pretty much 100 years ago, I think the anniversary is in October, he used one of these severed variables to measure how far away the Andromeda Galaxy was. His work then showed that the universe was expanding. But those two methods disagree they come up with uh, a different number for this Hubble constant, And JWST tried to uh, sort of see which one was correct. Um, and actually that's, that's part of the reason why the Hubble Space Telescope was discovered because it could look at these sacred variables because it's at, um, outside of the Earth's atmosphere. They have you know, much better optics than ground-based telescopes. They can really see where these saved variables were. But the problem with the Hubble Space Telescope is that it sees better in um, sort of blue lights than it is in red lights, but the blue light gets absorbed by dust um, quite easily. And so you're losing some of the information. JWC on the other hand sees in infrared. And so uh, it can see um, lights that is hidden behind um, dark dust clouds. um, And so we can get a better sort of measurement. So, what JWST found was that we can be confident that the past measurements by other telescopes were correct. They're, you know, accurate. And so we still have this question of, well, what is the Hubble constant then? (laughs) What is this number? Theory suggests that it should be somewhere around 68 kilometers per second Per megaparsec, Mm -hmm. one megaparsec is a million parsecs, or you can think of it in light years. So it's three million two hundred sixty light six three million two hundred sixty thousand light years. So a megaparsec is a really big distance. The measured Hubble constant ranges from about sixty nine point eight kilometers per second per megaparsec uh, to seventy four kilometers. Per okay. second, per megaparsec so. That's quite a big difference.
0: Hmm. So we just say there is variation in the Hubble. Um, JWST, as in there's variation between cosmic microwave and Hubble, but mm-hmm. JWST agrees with Hubble. And it gives us a more accurate result because it can see in infrared.
1: It agrees with not just the Hubble Space Telescope, but other space telescopes okay. that have measured this. Uh, apart from I guess, those that measure the cosmic microwave <laughs> background. <laughs> So it hasn't quite solved what's called the Hubble Tension. I think it might have actually made it more complicated <laughs> and more mysterious. So
0: everyone's trying very hard to work out exactly what the Hubble Constant is using these various methods.
1: Uh, why, do we, why do we care? Why do we want to know what the Hubble Constant is? So two reasons. It can help us figure out how the universe started in the first place. Uh, how old the universe is as well um and also what the future of the universe is going to be like because if it keeps expanding then everything in the universe will be so spread out you get what's called a heat death um stars might stop forming because the material just aren't you know close enough to each other to to Mm. start you know um that process um if the universe stops expanding and it just stays as it is, well, it just stays as it is. Or if it uh, actually does the opposite, it, it starts to um, contract and it could end up with something called the Big Crunch, which can <laughs> which can uh, kickstart uh, another Big Bang and start a new universe. I personally,
0: I like that option of the three if I was choosing for the universe. <laughs> I like the sort of cyclical nature of it, if it's going to expand, contract, mm. expand, contract.
1: Yeah, and who knows what part of that cycle we're in, how many cycles we've had before. Oh,
0: mind-blowing.
1: Okay, so we want to know how
0: fast the universe is expanding so we can think about how long it's been expanding for, where mm-hmm. it came from, mm-hmm. and then possibly how long it's going to keep expanding for. Mm-hmm. All right. I mean... Just for any any anxious people listening, it's not going to contract any second now. No, probably not. Probably not. if <laughs> Just in three minutes' time, the whole universe collapsed inwards. <laughs> Goodbye, universe. <laughs> I'll never eat my samosa.
1: <laughs> this is why you should always eat your dessert before your mains. Yes, the universe <laughs> might collapse at any moment.
0: Nice. So, Jay, just to be so I understand it properly, JWST has measured this by looking at distant stars. Yes. Not Andromeda. That was just what Hubble used.
1: That that years was what. Ago. That yeah, that's what Edwin Hubble used. Yes. The Hubble Space Telescope, other telescopes, and JWST can look for these severed variables in other galaxies that are mm. hundreds of light years away from oh, us. Wow.
0: There is a confusion with us naming telescopes after people. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Hubble the person looked at Andromeda, <laughs> Hubble the space telescope, <laughs> looked at more distant galaxies. Yes. <laughs> awesome, that is great. Thank you, Ophelia.
1: You're welcome. do we get this month on Twitter or X, whatever it's called, if it's still going, we'll be we asking you what you would call this exoplanet just talked about. What's it, what's it currently called? K218b. K218b. If you were to give it a proper name, what would you call it?
0: Yes. Uh, Sometimes the International Astronomical Union runs of naming competitions for planets. And when they do that, there's various rules in place. So when the IAU do this, they say that you can't name exoplanets after living people. You can't name exoplanets after corporations like Coca-Cola World.
1: ROG World.
0: ROG World. But yeah, I'm going to say for us, there are no rules. Yeah. 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 I like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, we look forward to hearing your ideas. We'll canvas our visitors as well. <laughs> and all that's left to say is thank you for listening
1: and keep looking up.
0: Well, I guess that's the end. <laughs> <laughs>